from the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University and Human Elements Canada, this is Disrupting Good, a podcast that looks at how technologies and trends are disrupting the way we do good. Now, here's your host, Matt Ewins. Welcome back to Disrupting Good. In our last episode, we shared some of the trends and technologies that our guests were most concerned about. For episode five, our guests dive into automation. And our first guest with his take on automation and its impact to how we do good is James Stotch, director at the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University. James, what does the upcoming crossroads of automation and humanity look like for you? So John Maynard Keynes uh, in, I believe it was 1930, wrote a piece uh, anticipating that the vast majority of jobs would be uh, lost to automation. And he wrote it as a kind of, you know, uh, as a very positive, um, hopeful piece to say this would be actually amazing for humanity if, you know, most of our dull, dirty, and dangerous jobs are uh, done by machines. What's left? Well, it's the creative, it's the generative, it's the um, recreating, it's, it's, uh, it's things that will, you know, build our... Uh, humanity. And that's exciting to contemplate. It's things that involve caring. So that's teaching and um, social work and uh, counseling and and things like that, as well as sharing. So, you know, the arts and music and um, sharing your talents with the world and sport. Um, we should have much more birth for that if you do the math. The question is, how do we make sure that the future is evenly distributed, right? So that we actually don't have a, a techno uh, elite who's massively wealthy and massively comfortable and everyone else who's living in some kind of depraved dystopia. Um, that's, that's the challenge. Work will be disrupted massively. I know there are people who say, well, there's always new jobs. Yes, there are always new jobs. But I don't know, if you do the math, there's like in 100 years, we, if we don't have things like a 15-hour work week and much more distributed labor, um, we're going to have mass civil disruption. There just won't be enough jobs. We're pushing 8 billion people on this planet. You know, the predictions for the United States and Canada are severe enough over the next 15 years. Things like 40% of all jobs will be gone in 15 years. We hear that st- statistic quite a bit. But actually, if you extend that to places that are hugely manufacturing reliant, so places like Vietnam or Ethiopia, uh, your numbers there are 85, 90% of all jobs will be lost to automation. That, that is quite something. And so that we need to get our heads around. It's not just what's happening in our province or our country, what's going to happen globally. Well, one of the trends we're seeing, uh, we've really seen over the last five to ten years, is um, the, there really is no more expectation that y- you, you reach a fork in the road where, on the one hand, you choose a life of prosperity and, you know, you go down that path and you might make a lot of money and at some point you might decide to be a philanthropist. Or the other path in the fork is you, you choose a life of good but it's an essentially an, an ascetic lifestyle. You, you have low salary expectations. Um, you, you won't enjoy the same benefits. 
and you'll you're never going to be a philanthropist, right? You're you're going to be a server uh, perpetually. That is what we have lived with for far too long, and mercifully, um, the generation that's going through undergraduate school now utterly rejects that dichotomy, and appropriately so. And so I, I've heard people say, "Well, that's just entitlement." Well, what's wrong with that? Um, People should be entitled to a decent wage and a decent living, and they should be entitled to work that is purposeful and serving humanity. And those two should not be dichotomous in the slightest. In fact, the, f- the fact that it isn't says something really messed up about the norms that our society has operated on to date. Uh, so that is a really interesting change. And as we see that become manifest as people get into the workforce and start new enterprises and disrupt old enterprises, including nonprofit enterprises, um, we will see that shift where um, socially beneficial pursuits actually have much more status than they used to in society. Next, we have Dr. Alina Turner, anthropologist, fellow at the School of Public Policy, U of C, and co-founder of HelpSeeker.org, an app and service that connects you to thousands of community, health, and social services with a click of a button. Alina looks at this topic through her various lenses. I feel like automation has actually been with us much, much longer than we give it credit for. Like we forget that Ford, for instance, was a a prime example of automation and how um, that really sped up production and increased wages and created kind of this middle class. And, and so automation is not always bad. Um, however, um, we also see examples nowadays where because of the com- combination of, of the mechanical and the mind, the mind wasn't there before, right? So that's, that's the big difference is the factories now not just replaced by robots, but the the managers are being replaced by by robots as well. So we see you know examples of um, factories and smart technology that in Asia, which is where all our electronics come from, where entire industries essentially went from let's say three thousand workers to ten workers. So you can imagine what's that what's that population going to do now, right? When, in countries where human labor was their means you know, of wealth, of GDP um, development. So, and our reliance on those goods is w- was actually employing those folks in, in other countries. As bad as globalization was, that is now actually being disrupted because machines can, can be anywhere as well. So um, those, those are really, really concerning to me because I feel that transformation has been afoot a really long time. And if I think about things like homelessness and uh, in the first world, that was globalization plus automation. And I don't think we recognize that well enough yet. Um, and, and so speed that up a bunch of times. The velocity is like way crazier now. So if, if, now, if we have homelessness already in all major centers in the first world, with the minimum automation that's been third industrial revolution type stuff, what's it going to mean for the fourth? It's, it's unreal what could happen. And so things like basic income, universal basic services, it's not an option. It's, it's what are we going to do with these humans that no longer have a purpose? 
what is the purpose of, of humans going to be when they don't need to work anymore? Now, in the co-created future, we say, awesome, technology has now enabled us, freed us from the yokes of employment and factory work, and now we can pursue our creative interests and and make the world even better and really engage in innovation, continuous learning, all these really exciting, cool things where everybody can still pursue their human uh, endeavors, creative endeavors, and but they have that social safety net that can support them to do that. And they benefit from the the wealth created by the technology. That's kind of the utopian view of it. The dystopian view is, of course, well, probably self-destruction because if you have, if you follow the line of thought that you have mass unemployment, homelessness, loss of opportunity for uh, social mobility, I mean, might last couple couple of decades it's not going to last indefinitely so there there has to be there will be kind of a reactionary force to that so if the if the robots don't take us over we're going to destroy ourselves <laughs> probably it's a Stephen Hawking thing right but uh yeah <laughs> um I think case management anybody that's doing social service work social workers I'd say absolutely because um as much as we like to think that those uh, jobs are immune. If you think about the tasks involved in social work, a lot of it is actually quite administrative. And so you mentioned before the automation of intake work, automation of referral, I mean, help seekers doing that already. So there's a lot of time that was used to be spent just looking for resources and referring people. That's huge. Like that's 90% of some people's jobs is just Referral, info and referral. What's your job? I, I'm an info and referral worker. Okay, well, we don't need that anymore. Like, it's automated. I can look for it myself. Thanks. Right? So, quite relevant. So then, therefore, what, what is the, what's left that's really core that you never get to because of all this paperwork anyways? Right? So, and you, you hear that all a lot, a lot at the frontline level where they're saying they're so burdened by the data entry and the, the runaround, well, what if that, what if we integrated technology so that was eliminated, right? However, the technology adoption takes a really long time in the nonprofit sector. We're notoriously behind. Some of them still use paper files, so it's actually not, not as easy as, as we might think because we haven't prioritized it. And, and yet we have probably the most to gain because of that exact reason. And our clients should be the primary reason we're doing it. How does a CEO of a for-profit B Corporation view automation? Specifically, how automation and technology can impact the financials of the nonprofit sector? Here is founder and CEO for Benevity, Brian DeLottenville. Well, you know, there's the there's the basic stuff that you know, you know most most vertical industries have already used technology in ways that the charitable, charitable um, and nonprofit landscape is not doing as much of. There's, a, I would say, some technological lag in, in that landscape. So, you know, where online trading, online banking, online everything is, is, has been around for a long time and, and very sophisticated um, in some areas of the particularly the transactional elements of the nonprofit sector, that is still uh, relatively new and so um, we need to 
you know, and fragmented. So when you contrast credit card platforms, for instance, where there's, you know, maybe a dozen of them in, in the entire world, they have all the volume, the, the merchant account fees have steadily gone down from du double digits over time. It works for merchants, it works for consumers. No one really kind of thinks much about it. Um, in the donation processing world, there are tens and tens of thousands of organizations that get money to charities. Um, even the online platforms, a lot of the fulfillment is still done with manual checks in the mail and, and tax receipts being generated. And, and it's just, it's a lot of money uh, that could be, that is being chewed up in administrative kind of uh, expense that could be going to the social issues that people uh, are investing in. And, and so, you know, at 1.2 billion uh, of donation volume last year, that's, that's just, not, you know, scratching the surface of, even in North America, it's like 440 billion or something in total. So, so we're, we're just scratching the surface, but 88% of that was paid electronically. So, um, y you know, there's, there's, this mis misdirected, uncashed, stale-dated checks is a is a really endemic problem in in our space. And getting nonprofit organizations to give us banking information so that they so that we can pay them electronically is a, a surprisingly difficult task. Um, and we're very proud of that metric. When we when we were at sixty percent, the next best provider was at five percent and we're at 88 percent the next best is now at 35 percent so once you you know create that comfort level with uh electronic payments and ach then they're more willing to to do it with with others as well so some of those um you know table stakes technology elements are are still needing more prevalence and investment in our space before you get into the the really exotic ones um if that makes sense. Yeah. And finally, we have Brianna Brownell, artificial intelligence expert, founder, and CEO at Pure Strategy Inc., a company that uses AI to remove the anxiety that comes with worrying that important information is overlooked within organizations by providing personalized AI solutions to help understand unstructured data. Here is Brianna. Being able to use technology to make people's jobs easier and better is something that I've been working on for a long time. And really that's the reason that I started my company is to be able to allow people um, to use technology that would um, allow them to concentrate on the areas of their job that are of higher value rather than the sort of the things that, you know, you'd rather kind of push off your plate. And so for me, there's sort of two sides to it. Um, on the one hand, you have um, some of the tasks that people do want to automate. So, you know, I think of my mom, she has a Roomba vacuum cleaner, and she absolutely loves that thing. She's got it, you know, going around her house and, and vacuuming all the time. And I don't think that anybody's really, really sad that, you know, they're not able to vacuum themselves, right? It's not a task that we like really want to take on as, you know, part of our identity. But then if you think of other areas, um, you know, for example, in medicine, um, medical diagnosis, um, it's something that you train your whole life to be able to do well. And so to be able to um, all of a sudden take 
say 20, 30 years of experience. And now you're asking a technology to do that. And sometimes it can do it better than you can. I think that that's where it becomes really challenging when you have a technology that's um, doing some of the tasks that people take a great deal of pride in. And so it's not really just about automating jobs. It's about understanding why people are so tied to some of the tasks that sort of provide them insight about their own identity and their own uh, feeling of mastery at work. I mean, if you look at um, history and the way that technology sort of typically seems to go through industries, um, there, so I'll, I'll try to explain I guess what the what the challenge is with artificial intelligence that's different from some of the times that this has happened in history. So if you look at um, if you look at the the garment industry um, when there was no automation at all, and you have individual um, individual seamstresses that were sewing clothes, um, and then you move to sort of a, a partial automation. So you you start using sewing machines instead of um, sewing by hand. So the skills that are required in uh, to be a seamstress at the beginning and the skills that are required to run a sewing machine have a little bit of overlap, but not a complete overlap. So, you know, you need to understand something like garment construction, um, basically how the clothes are made in general to be good at both roles. And that's great. And it means that someone who starts out as a seamstress can potentially move into sort of that semi-automated um, environment where the skills that they already have transfer to the new environment. But then if you look at an increase in automation from that, where um, essentially the in the garment industry, you have completely automated um, garment construction and um, and all of the all of the parts are um, all of the parts are handled by robotics. The way in which somebody can move from that first by hand seamstress um, to completely just running machines is a lot more difficult of a transition, and it might be impossible. And so, what we're seeing now is industries are moving quickly from that sort of really bespoke by hand approach through semi-automation to complete automation fast enough that the individuals who are working in that industry at the beginning are unable to transition their skills fast enough to remain in that industry. Um, and in some cases, the skills that are necessary to perform well in that industry change so drastically that um, they're you know, either not interested or not suited to to remain working in that industry. And so I think that technologies like artificial intelligence um, have that risk where um, the automation is happening so quickly that uh, the individuals can't sort of remain in that industry because of the pace of change. Well, I mean, I think that for a long time, um, the the rhetoric was always that you um, you know, you finish high school and then you decide to go to university or to trade school or somewhere 
Um, and then you, you do a few years of training for whatever job you wanted to get. And then you do that job forever, you know, until you retire. And, you know, I think that people are realizing that that's, that just doesn't work anymore. The, the speed at which um, the economy is changing, uh, the speed at which new skills are required, even in, um, even in jobs that are sort of stable or have been stable over the long term, change extremely quickly. Um, so if you look at law, for example, there are so many more things that are being automated within the law profession that, you know, that individuals who are working in it need to spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly how they can utilize those systems. So um, I think that the idea of going to school once in our life and then, you know, using that for sort of the, the rest of our career um, is going to become a really, really dated ideal. And so having more of a um, continuous education or some kind of a, a system where people can uh, move through different careers throughout their lives is going to become the norm. When asked about a do-gooder organization that others should know about, Brianna wanted you to know about the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Here she is talking about HAI's mission. There are so many organizations that are, are doing good work. Um, within artificial intelligence, there's a, a recently created group at Stanford that has a purpose of bringing together people from multiple different disciplines in order to change the dialogue around artificial intelligence and broaden it from just the technical community. And so, you know, that's not the only organization that's looking to do something like that. But I think that being able to start that dialogue with individuals who are working in several different disciplines is going to be more and more important in how we deal with technology ultimately. It's because there's such a focus on making sure that there's a conversation between different disciplines that I find really intriguing. So, you know, unfortunately, history has kind of not really mixed, you know, some of the technological disciplines too much with the humanities. So, you know, we've seen in artificial intelligence, um, folks talking with biologists and neuroscientists, and that's been really good. But it's only been within the last few years that they've sort of started talking with ethicists and philosophers and historians and, you know, individuals who are kind of in humanities and social sciences. And so I think that that's so important because some of these questions aren't going to be solved by the technical community. It's going to be solved by a larger community that's having a much more broad and much more far-reaching dialogue. And uh, one of the main people who's behind that is Fei-Fei Li, who is one of the most prominent researchers in deep learning. She's one of the most prolific technologists in AI right now. And so the reason that I, I think that it's such a powerful organization is that, you know, you have such a strong technical leader who is starting this conversation. To learn more about the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, to view some of their videos or sign up for their newsletter, point your browser at hai.stanford.edu.
Welcome once again to Kurzweil's Corner, a peek into a possible future. Inventor, author, futurist, and outlier, Ray Kurzweil has a technology prediction success rate of roughly 86% since the 1990s. In this chapter of Kurzweil's Corner, we're sharing reactions from three of our guests to two Kurzweil predictions. The first is that within this decade, the 2020s, self-driving vehicles begin to take over the roads and people will no longer be allowed to drive on highways. Secondly, that by the end of the next decade, the 2030s, humanity will be able to upload our consciousness to a network. Kind of like a backblaze service for your mind, perhaps? First, you'll hear James and Brianna discussing self-driving vehicles, and then we have Alina and Brianna discussing uploading human minds. Pretty mind-blowing. I mean, the only one of those that, that I was anticipating until you mentioned them um, was the the people not really being allowed to drive anymore. Mm. I mean, so many people get killed in uh, a given year uh, in automobile accidents. It's it's one of those things we're going to look back in 50 years and go, well, how did we allow that to happen? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, it's like, it's like today we would, you know, we actually allowed people to, like, ride in pickup trucks. I remember riding in the back of a pickup truck, my parents' pickup truck, to Edmonton and back with my brother and sister, it was a blast. It was awesome. We were just covered in blankets, riding to Edmonton. I mean, it seems absolutely absurd now. And of course, the very notion of allowing humans on an open road to drive around and risk their lives and the lives of others, especially if they've imbibed in one substance or another, will seem so socially antithetical uh, and embarrassing uh, it will make our grandchildren laugh or cringe or whatever, right? So uh, that one I have no trouble believing. We are mm. headed in that direction 100%. You know, the tar sands, just Suncor just replaced 400 of their trucks with self-driving self um, vehicles. Uh, it's coming. It, it's coming, and there's nothing we can do about it, and it's a good thing for society. Um, I love driving, you know, with the top off and the open road, and, and there's something wonderful and free about that, but... Um, it's one of those things that we won't be able to enjoy and shouldn't be able to enjoy going, going forward. Honestly, I can't wait until self-driving cars take over the roads. I can't wait because I really hate driving. <laughs> and so I think that this is absolutely true. Like we're looking at the technology and self-driving cars getting better and better and better. And I think it's easy to see within the next 10 years that it's going to become extremely commonplace. So I, I tried one of the self-driving cars last year. And the interesting thing for me about that experience was when you're sitting in the back and the car is turning and you can see the wheel turning and there isn't a driver in there, it's very challenging to sort of trust what the car is doing at this point. But I think that as the technology improves and as they become more common, then, you know, it's going to become so commonplace that, you know, you're not going to have that little stomach flip when, you know, the wheel starts to turn. So I, I definitely think that it's going to be very soon that we're going to have a lot more um, self-driving options. You know, it's interesting because my mom has a chronic disease, lung disease, and their lifespan is about five years if it's, if it goes astray it could be could be much longer but um you know when I was reading that I, I thought about that because I thought 
one of the things she said when she found out is, I'm not going to see Reese grow up. And uh, then with that, that might not have to be a choice, right? And so, but how do you see when you're, when that's your fate? It's one way to achieve immortality for sure, as long as nobody pulls the plug at least. Um, But then, and I was going to say your future is then in the control of whoever's operating that system, but it's not like, it's not like we're not under social control anyway. <laughs> so it's, you're just trading masters. Um, I don't know. I think I would actually seriously consider it if, if it was right in front of me. Yet, you know, there was, I was reading this book again. It's a kid's book with, uh, with my son. And it was talking about, I forget who the, it was one of those like famous kids authors. And it was saying how the reason life is so special is because there's an alternative because it's limited. Yeah. Um, actually, I think it was Harry Potter, <laughs> Dumbledore. <laughs> I think it was Dumbledore who was saying that, um, or something to that effect. So, you know, I think it's a it's an interesting choice. And there is a there is that series on Netflix too about shedding skins, where you're just shedding the body, but the mind gets uploaded back in. And forget the the name of it. Altered carbon. Altered maybe. carbon. There you go. So. I don't know. I'm not super opposed to it for myself because I'm really anti-dying my, right now because I'm really loving my life. But, uh, you know, ask, ask me when I'm at my... At, well, and you don't know, right? Would you do this as a backup? It's like freezing your eggs just in case. Right? Have a, have a backup because you might get hit by a truck, so you might need to download. It's like your Apple phone you, in your new model. You just upload in your new model. Mm-hmm. That altered carbon thing is like not too far off mm-hmm. from this prediction. Absolutely. And I mean, when you think of it, the ethics around creating mechanical minds, as you say, are not solidified yet. I mean, you know, this was discussed in the in Battlestar Galactica quite a bit. Um, you know, if you look at that series, you know, is it is it still a crime if you commit a crime against a Cylon that's a machine, right? Is, is that still a criminal activity? Well, you know, it's, it's ambiguous, right? And so being able to um, start to have some of these conversations about what, what does it mean to sort of upload your mind and what does consciousness really mean are such important conversations and, you know, things that have been debated for, millennia but what's interesting about the moment that we're in now is that you know a lot of the assumptions that we are seeing about the way that the mind works and and the way that we make our decisions we now have the technology to to be able to sort of test some of those things we have the technology to be able to see whether those things are actually true so that's kind of an interesting one because it's a very ambiguous statement right So as far as uploading our mind, so does this mean creating some kind of an artificial neural network, let's say, that, um, you know, replicates your mind as closely as possible, but instead of it being stored in your brain, it's stored, you know, on a server somewhere and it's, you know, in the cloud or whatever. And so I'm not really sure exactly what he means by this. But I think that it will definitely be possible to sort of what I want to say is is outsourcing some of the things that our brains do to technology. So whether that's, you know, remembering things. And of course, you know, we know that 
a lot of the things that you know, we don't need to remember them anymore. We just sort of outsource that task to technology. And so I think that as the technology gets better and better, we're going to start outsourcing more and more things to technology. Before we wrap up, we just wanted to say that if this podcast gets your little gray cells hungry for more about how the social profit sector can get better at doing good, we recommend listening to Pause, a podcast from Alberta Social Innovation Connect. In Pause, partners and collaborators take a moment to sit down together, reflecting on the work they're doing to address the root causes of complex problems in their communities. You'll hear reflective dialogue from people working to shift the status quo to new or different ways of working. For example, through social innovation labs, social enterprise models, and coalitions and networks. You can subscribe to Pause in your local podcast player of choice, or you can find Pause at absiconnect.ca slash podcast. Thank you. And now back to the end of the show. That's it for this episode of Disrupting Good. We hope you enjoyed it. This show was made by... Elise Mertinoski, James Stotch, Alina Turner, Brian DeLottenville, Brianna Brownell, Colson Proudfoot, and me, Matt Ewens. Special thanks to Colson Proudfoot for his production time and attention. Thanks to Human Elements for hosting this episode at DisruptingGood.com and to the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University for their generous support for this project. I'm at Matt Ewens on Twitter, and you'll hear us next time on the finale of Season 1 when our guests grade humanity on their ability to adapt to today's world. All next time in Episode 6 of Disrupting Good.